Hello and welcome to the Week at Work episode three. Um, I'm your host Dave Gibney and I've got my co-hosts here Stevie Nolan and Kieran Campbell. This week we have Councillor Lorna Bogue from the Green Party who's going to be helping us analyse some of the newspapers and the big news during the week. Um, I'm going to go straight away again into Stefano Nulon there Stevie. Um, tell us what's on the front pages that you've been looking at. Well, the big news here, Dave, in the north, in the Occupy 6 uh, in Ulster, you know, the province, uh, and it's in both the Irish News and the newsletter, is that the Hatfield Bar, which is a pub I used to frequent back in my youth, has been allowed to start delivering pints of Guinness again. They started delivering pints of Guinness door-to-door in April. The PS and I stepped in uh, and stopped it, said it was a breach of licence and regulation. So the Hatfield Bar took them to court, and I, I believe they've come to an amicable agreement. So um, there'll be a van heading around the doors of South Belfast now with a, with a keg and a cooler and pints. So I think that's a, a good story for us to kick off a Sunday morning. Unfortunately, I'm a little bit far away to order them, but I'm tempted. Uh, in terms of actual real stories, the, the Sunday Times headline, um, the paper of the British establishment, uh, is unfortunately brought back the everyone's favourite six-letter word, Brexit. And it's an article about Barnier's warning to Johnson and Cummings about... Um, Getting a deal before the end of this year. Once the transition period is up December 31st, uh, if they don't have a free trade deal by then, it's um, it's a no deal. And Britain reverts to WTO rules with the European Union. And so uh, that will be a well, that will be a disaster for the British economy, of course, because I, I was reading there, but I think it's about 47% of all the UK exports go into the EU. So uh, that's back on our political um, horizon now, Brexit. Uh, and... Uh, I think it's going to be a major story going forward because Dominic Cummings clearly wants a no deal. You know, a bit of chaos. It seems to be his thing. Uh, apart from that, uh, the other big story, which I'm sure you want to talk about, is uh, what's happening in America. Yeah. Um, Kieran, what have you been looking at? Well, look, um, I suppose if you're looking at the front page, through the Independent, the Sunday Independent's really talking about the coronavirus situation again, about the fact that they're looking to move forward the the opening of the economy. Um, there seems to be a lot of pressure on the government to actually bring forward the phase three up towards um, the end of June um, as quickly as possible, and even further feed, you know. But um, the other type of stuff, you know, the health and safety executive were told to correct their list of COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes. Um, it's all really coronavirus related. Um, although, you know, you do a bit of digging, you start to find other pieces of news which are of interest, not least the government formation talks. That seems to be dragging on and on and on. Um, but interestingly, I thought um, on Wednesday in those times, one of the sticking points during the government formation talks, apparently the Occupied Territories bill that was promoted by um, Francis Black, um, which was an interesting take because I never thought that would figure really in the government formation talks. Now, I'm pleased to see that the Green Party and the Fianna Fáil Party are actually pushing that that should be passed into legislation because I think it's a very important piece of legislation. But it was sort of a bolt from the blue to think that that might be a stumbling block regarding government formation. Um, and really, in today's Sunday Independent, I was taken by Jean Carrigan's um, opinion article on the Ferrari about Pat McDonough of Supermax um, when he was on radio during the week. Um, 
whereby he effectively, again, and they seem to be trumming out these particular um, sort of business type tycoons, more or less to say that the pandemic unemployment benefit is just way too much money, unaffordable. And he likened to some of his workers actually winning the lotto, which I thought was an absolute disgrace. But happy to talk about any of those if you think it's worth talking about, Dave. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick quickly with that one uh, on the Supermax one because uh, far be for me to be critical of a, a major multi-millionaire employer, but he did clarify in the today's Sunday Business Post about those comments about winning the lotto. He said the 350 euro a week payment was like winning the lotto, but he said he was referring to the GAA lotto and not to the national lottery when he made the comment on the radio. And I'm sure he's been. Genuine in that, I'm sure that's exactly what he meant when he said winning the lotto. Because immediately everybody uh, thinks, you know, the lottery—it's the local GAA lottery uh, that he's talking about. But um, he mentioned in it—I mean, it's one of those things that really annoys me about it because he he mentioned it about about the 350 euros being too much for many workers in, in the economy, and that they're now earning more, and all of a sudden the voices of industry rally in behind them and say, look, it's all about part-time work. And that's what we're talking about here. Um, it's people on 10 and 12 and 13 and 14 hours that we're talking about that are getting 350 euros. These were the voices that were not, not silent during the debate two years ago when we were trying to uh, change legislation to allow part-time workers to access more hours at work to take them out of the poverty net. Again, it's one of those things that I've been banging on about, and I know I'm wrecking everybody's head about it, but we have one of the highest underemployment rates in all of the EU. We've got over 100,000 people who are at part-time work, want more hours at work, but their employer won't give them more hours at work. Where was Pat McDonough uh, as the hero of those poor part-time workers during that debate? When we took a, a, a vote was taken in the Dáil, um, 38 votes to 35 to remove that piece of legislation. Um, so, I mean, I find it a little bit disingenuous that the small medium enterprises and um, the Vintners Association, all the others are complaining about this 350 euros a week, saying that they want part-time workers to, to, to be incentivized to come back. They didn't want part-time workers to be incentivized to move out of poverty. Lorna, have you been looking at anything? Yeah, so um, I've been looking at the um, Sunday Business Post um, and the, the front page, like the two stories there um, that, that Kieran referred, I think, kind of to one of them, which is just um, this, this pressure that's coming on Cabinet now to, um, to ease restrictions. Um, there's, there's a very kind of interesting kind of story on the front page there, um, uh, just talking about, you know, like what particular interests are kind of pushing for a change to the lockdown restrictions, but also, you know, it's it's just interesting that like particularly this two meters has kind of come up. Um, that's that seems to be the real sticking point. Um, and I suppose a lot of um, people in Fianna Fáil in particular um, seem to be looking for that to be reduced down to one meter. Um, you know, I, I'm not really seeing <laughs> not really seeing where they're getting their evidence for doing such a thing um you know so it's just it's just interesting that um i mean like here's you know a fairly scientific kind of you know recommendation coming from the world health organization which is to you know st try and stay two meters away from each other um and now suddenly 
you know, there's there's so many epidemiologists in the doll I was unaware of. <laughs> and they're all experts now. Um, so uh, so so they're having that kind of conversation, which is just a bit, you know, worrying um, for, for that kind of idea to be getting out there. Because um, like the, the two meters, as far as I was aware, seems fairly concrete and solid um, in terms of the actual approach that should be taking um, and then there's another interesting story on the um, front page of the business post and I suppose it kind of feeds into um, this two meter versus one meter kind of debate because um, it's um, Pascal Donoghue he's telling insurers that they risk irreparable damage to their reputation um, and, and again like you know uh, th this is the state and instead of saying well hang on a second guys you're not actually doing what you're supposed to be doing you're not giving people what they're paying for um we're going to use regulation now to ensure that you actually do um what you're supposed to be doing and we're not going to let you off not insuring um for this particular pandemic i mean like that's literally the whole point of having insurance um instead of instead of saying that like we, we just kind of have this approach of Oh come on now, guys! You know, you know, you're you're business people. We're business people. <laughs> like, yeah. why why don't what you're you're risking? You know, reputational damage, and you know, people people might you know chew, walk with their feet and sort of choose something else. And in the free marketplace, like this mm. might be a good thing for you instead of just coming down and being like, look, you know, you have to do this, like, or or else you know we're going to have to like nationalize the insurance industry or do something like that um you know i, I say this as a as a councillor who has had many problems um with the insurance industry i mean like we've got um this, this is lo local local news klaxon but um you know like down in cork we have several facilities that we can't use um because the insurance premiums are so prohibitively expensive that people can't actually use these facilities and it's starting i mean it's moving into childcare, it's moving into community centers and services like all this kind of stuff um and this kind of approach to you know this this kind of approach to the insurance industry um and industry as a whole which is just like you know oh well please don't do that but we're not going to do anything about it but you know we're just saying please don't like that's i i don't think i don't think that kind of is going to cut it anymore like i think i think the time for that is done now at this point so it's just interesting these two stories kind of together um on the front page of the business post well, well no doubt we're about to see probably from a, a finnegan minister for finance tax incentives to pay out uh, to the people who are not getting their insurance. I read that article as well. I found it fascinating that he, some of the comments in it, you know, the Minister for Finance said he fundamentally disagreed with any attempts by insurers to reject business interruption claims on the basis that government advice for businesses to close did not amount to an order to do so. So the insurance companies are now saying to the companies that shut down, we you were only advised to shut down, you weren't instructed to shut down. So that's, that's their loophole that they're trying to get around. Um, and as you say, fa failure to do the right thing could cause irreversible damage to the reputation of insurers. Um, he said, the minister also warned that the actions of insurers during the public health crisis could have an influence on government policy in the sector going forward, making the assumption that Fine Gael are going to be in government going forward as if they're actually going to do anything anyway. And the final bit I had marked out from that story as well was there was a perception among the public that, and businesses that insurers were not acting honestly or fairly in the best interests of their customers, as if insurance companies are there to act in the best interests of their customers. 
Insurance companies are capitalist organizations that are there to make a profit for the owners. They don't care about the customers. They're only there to make money from the customers. So I just, I, I found it a really annoying um, article again, but as you say, it's, it's the watchdog with no teeth, the minister there pretending that he's going to do something when he's really, he, he's not, he's, he's not bothered at all. Um, just on the other one, the two meter rule, because I, for my sins, I was up this morning at seven o'clock um, with the baby and uh, watching BBC News. And they had a former chairperson of Pizza Express on. It's, it's interesting to see how the both sides of the, you know, the British capitalism and, and Irish capitalism are all singing off the same hymn sheet saying we need to businesses, particularly restaurants, hospitality sector, retail are not going to be able to function in the same way. And, and pubs not going to be able to function in the same way with two meter rule. Let's reduce it to one one meter. And the BBC journalist asked, well, hold on. The evidence from the WHO and everyone is that you are 10 to 30 times more likely to catch COVID in, the, in that scenario. Reduce it from two meters to one. 10 to 30 times, not 10% or 30% more likely, 10 to 30 times more likely to catch it. And he said, but your businesses need to, need to operate. So effectively, throw your low paid staff to the wolves, let them catch uh, the virus and uh, let them bring it home to their families because there's a, a restaurant down the road that needs to make money. Um, and we're not prepared to, to, to bail them out any further. Um, Stevie, any other observations there? No, just on the coronavirus thing, it's quite clear that the, the easing of restrictions is, is a shambles everywhere. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. They're making up as they go along. The idea of the two-meter rule down to a meter rule, is, as you said, is complete nonsense. Uh, and what they're worried about, I suppose, is, is there are two million people over in Britain working in the service sector who, um, who are either going to be redundant in two months or they're going to have jobs so they're kind of stuck in a bind and don't know what to do in terms of what's happening in the north which has begun to follow i suppose to, in some way you know parallel with the republic which is a better approach that the psni said yesterday uh, the headline in the newsletter is you can travel but please don't so that's clear that's excellent <laughs> advice there from the local psni because they, they traveling restrictions here and i live out in the countryside and um Belfast, basically, and, and also North Dublin decamped to the Mourne Mountains yesterday. It was absolutely fucking packed. Roads were blocked. There are thousands of cars. The beaches are packed, solid. Uh, there's no toilet facilities. It's, it's, a, it's absolute. It's a real shambles, actually. And I've talked to mates over in London, and it's no better. So I'm, I'm becoming more convinced all the time that there's going to be a second spike and, and potentially another lockdown. Who knows, come the end of summer, start of the start of the September, you know? There was a good, uh, I don't know if you saw it, you probably didn't, in the Irish Times yesterday, there was a piece um, on page four just about the virus and the excess deaths. And I'm glad people are starting to talk about the excess mortality and excess death levels in Ireland for different issues. But um, it, in it, there's a comparison being made now between the North figures and, and, and the Southern figures. Um, I'm trying to find it here, but uh, it, it's a, they're trying to crunch the data. But in the South, we don't have accurate up-to-date data. So what the... What the economists and everybody has now started using is RIP.ie, the website data, to see how many people have been, um, ha have been reported dead this year compared to this time last year. And when you look at that, those figures, there's something above 600 extra deaths per month or something. Or I, think, I think it's per, there's, there's actually a, a really good chart on it there to, to show per week how many extra deaths there are. And it's huge, like the amount of people who are dying. But it prompted a, a war of words in Northern Ireland when Mike Tomlinson, who was crunching the data, uh, concluded that Northern Ireland fatalities are well above those in the Republic by the order of 41 to 50%. And now, 
it says 599 excess deaths in the north for May alone, May the 8th. So Yeah, there's a, there's a report out today in the papers, or yesterday actually, about 50% of all the deaths in the north are in care homes for older people. So there's there's a real problem there. We have a local care home not far from here, and there's had like 19 cases, and there's only about 50 people in it, you know, um, and a number of deaths as well. So there's another scandal there going to emerge, because as with Britain, uh, we just threw our old people under the bus. Yeah, and and with with us in the south, our figures I think are about sixty sixty five percent of those who died were in in care homes. And I don't know about the north whether it's similar in that it's a lot of private agencies uh, using agency staff. So you know they might pick it up in one nursing home, go over and work in the next nursing home, and and pass it on to the people over there too. So that seems to have been a a big problem is the, the employment standards in those homes. Um, Kieran, anything else yourself there? Yeah, just when we go back to this whole thing and open up in the economy, I did notice in the Sunday Business Post, Elaine Byrne had a column um, whereby she identified, you know, the lobbying campaign that has been going on to try and open up the economy, um, if not within the roadmap that the government has outlined, but, you know, even sooner. And she talks about two different type of lobbyists, um, the political lobbyist, and she highlights the fact that up until April, just from the start of the pandemic, there were 147 different types of lobbying um, sort of letters, representations made by different business institutions, among which was the American Chamber of Commerce. And then she talks about the other lobbyists, which are the Pat McDonald's, the Michael O'Leary, and she talks about all of the ones over the last week that have been trundled onto the media and the airwaves, basically all business-centric, um, all talking about the need to open up um, the economy, many of whom, of those spokespeople, probably would be representing industries that um, hire predominantly low-paid workers, have them on precarious employment contracts. Um, and we did say this, This is the, we predicted this was going to happen from that fateful first podcast that we did, that the narrative was going to change. And, you know, and I think it, you know, I think you've been a bit unfair in the insurance bodies and the Irish and British capitalists, you know, <laughs> it's just capitalism, you know, fuck the workers, let's just throw them under the bus. We need to make money. We need to keep our profits. And let me tell you, Sure as hell, when all of this gets back to any sort of normality and even through another spike, which I agree with Stevie, that probably will happen in terms of deaths and case histories and all of that. Um, where do you see um, how the business community is treated as compared to the workers? Yeah. Lorna, have you any observations on that stuff? Um, well, I, I do. Um, and again, it's kind of a local government kind of angle because um, that's, that's where I work. But, um, yeah, the, the Sunday Business Post also has um, an interesting story. It's kind of hidden there in the middle of it. Um, it's by Aidan Corkery, um, and it's very good. It's just um, talking about how councils across the country now are having to put in new budgets, um, and basically, you know, we're not getting a whole lot of assistance um, from central government um, in terms of um, get, getting, getting those budgets gaps sort of plugged back in um, and already like local government in Ireland is so chronically underfunded that there's very very little kind of services that we can provide anyway we're already cut to the bones so we're, we're already at the level of pretty much every service we provide is essential um, and the whole COVID kind of um, response has been on the back of councils like it's councils that are organizing 
um, all of the all of the facilities that are there for people cocooning. Um, but of course, um, we're going to have to go now and um, cut our budgets um, af- after this. Um, and you know that that has a knock-on effect on housing. Um, it has a knock-on effect on things like fire services. Um, you know, lots of just very vital things that need to be getting done all the time. Um, and already our you know our slashed budgets are going down. I'd say probably by an average of a third um, across the country. I'd I'd say from my own experience. So, you know, like that's that's a that's a big problem as well that's coming down the line. And you know, it is that kind of logic of well, we have to get back to business as usual, um, which means that like the th- the thing that kind of concerns me about the coronavirus as a whole is just that we're probably going to see like a large amount of privatization happening as a result of this so a lot of um council assets um for example land because councillors are generally the biggest landholders um where where they are um i could see like sort of file fire sales of assets occurring um i could see arms of um council being privatized as a result of this i can see various different services being privatized um you know, like while while we're while we're all sort of sitting here bickering about um this this COVID payments, like um my my big kind of concern really is that we're going to end up um in a worse off position than we were in the first place, um and we're gonna it's it's going to be quite bad because we'll start to see all of this. You know, we had we had a little bit of big state, we had a taste of it for for a month or so now, but they they'll be they'll be slapping on the brakes now after this, um and. A lot of um, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael's kind of narrative or rhetoric at the moment is about, well, you know, someone will have to pay for this, like, and we're going to have to claw all this stuff back. Um, and it's going to be, um, it's going to be local government. It's going to be people who need housing. Like, it's going to be, it's going to be people who are working who are going to have this um, money clawed back from them because they don't want to um, touch the businesses. Yeah, as you as usual, similar to the last time. Just before you come in, Stevie, just something on both what Lorna has said there and Kieran said just r- reminded me of uh, I don't know what page it is, but it's it's the um, survey that was done for the Sunday Business Post, um, a, a poll that they had done over the weekend, and I think it's interesting as as both of you have said about you know the voices that we're hearing in the papers about the COVID payment and and all the rest of it is there is a bit of a distraction there. Everybody paying attention to it. it's an important one, but. Um, you know, when you have Michael O'Leary and Pat McDonough and, you know, American Chamber of Commerce, these are the people we're hearing. We're not hearing from ordinary folk, people who are on the payment. No, no ordinary workers are out there front and centre. They're not going to trade union offices and doing interviews with the general secretaries about, about what's happening there. And um, that's been persistent for the last two months. And that poll is, is, is showing here, I'll, I'll give you the results of it. The poll shows that 51% of people believe the COVID payment and wage subsidies should be kept in place until the end of year, but 44% believe payments should be wound down. Now, that figure was up at 77% only a couple of weeks ago. So these, these voices do have an impact on the public perception of what's going on. We're hearing about these part-time workers on 10 hours who are receiving the payment. Just ignore... The, all of the other people who were on 600 euros a couple of weeks ago and now are, are savage, their payments are down and, and they're struggling to pay their mortgages and all the rest of it. So it, it's about those voices in the media and who gets who gets to hear um, what's happening. Stevie, you want it in? Yeah, just a very brief point to back up what Lorna was saying about you know the preparations for austerity 2.0, which is clearly mm-hmm. happening all across Europe. Even the, 
The European Union's great fiscal rescue package was announced this week by von der Leyen and it amounts to about 0.56% of the EU's total budget for the next four years. So it's like minuscule amounts of money now are going to be available for the 27 members, you know. So uh, even the European Union's failed massively on this one and it, it appears as if we're, you know, we're just going to see a reconstitution of class power again like we did in 2008, 2009. So um, we've got a job of work to do to stop that happening you know yeah just i'm gonna to come to lorna again now in a second because i want to ask her about uh something that she may have some insights on um in the <coughs> government formation talks i don't know whether you do or not but i'm looking at yesterday's um irish times page seven public patients sorely tested as parties crawl towards the deal now just in the headline public patients nobody's asked me i'm part of the public and um, i love the way you know, some newspapers tell us what the public think and what the public is thinking. Um, I don't believe the public patience is wearing thin on government formation. I've been talking to an awful lot of people over the last couple of weeks and nobody has gone, Jesus, I'm really pissed off about government not forming here. Everybody's more pissed off about being locked down or, you know, restrictions or whatever is going on and, and they want to get about their lives. But, you know, just if you have any insights into what's happening there, what, what, what's going on with the Green Party and the government formations? Build the beans, Lorna. <laughs> Time to start singing like a canary. <laughs> oh my God, it's a trap. Um, I, I thought I was on here to talk about the environment and cycle lanes and stuff. <laughs> That's what I was told. You get to that. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I suppose just to, just to pick up on another point there, I mean, like the ESRI came out this week and said that austerity measures just don't work. Um, as an economic as an economic tool, they just don't work. They didn't even particularly work last time, and then trying to apply the same playbook to this particular situation isn't going to work. Um, so uh, you know, like this this kind of drive towards austerity, it's not backed up by um, the field of economics at all. Um, and I, I, for my sins, have a master's in economics. So, um, you know, it's 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 just interesting that people sort of take as gospel you have to do austerity when. In fact, it's very much not not what um, not what the field is saying. Um, yeah, this article um, by Fia uh, Kelly and Pat Lahi, um, my my favorite my favorite commentators. Um, such such insight. Um, yeah, it's it, I just I just found the whole thing really funny because um, interesting enough, um, like the the way that they talk about the green team. Um, of negotiators in there like there's there's two women on it and then there's um several male tds um, but the only people who Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are talking about are the women tds <laughs> um, so nasa harrigan is um identified by uh you know senior Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael sources as um being very outspoken uh, very bolshy um whereas catherine um who is not speaking so much was she's been described as uh, being sphinx-like. She sits there like a sphinx, says one insider. <laughs> and it's just funny, like, as, you know, as, as a woman in politics myself, like, it's always so funny to read, like, these, these kind of descri descriptions of women in politics. Because if you don't talk, you're, you're mysterious and kind of, like, sneaky. Um, but if, if you do talk, then you're terribly outspoken and you know not doing your side any favors so like you can't you just can't win um if you're if you're if you're a woman politician um so yeah i just i just found this article sort of 
particularly funny because, um, I mean, like a lot of the commentary that I have been reading about it um, or about the negotiations process has been very much, you know, there's been a lot of, lot of pearl clutching going on, a lot of, oh my God, you know, I can't believe, you know, the Green Party wants things for the environment and they also want housing and health, those things that they campaigned on in the last election. Like, this is shocking stuff. Like, I can't believe it. Like, it's time for the Greens to grow up um, and they should just go and accept what Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael tell them that we just can't do things and they're idealists and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there is a particularly egregious headline it's probably weeks ago now at this point, but like Alison O'Connor had this whole article about, you know, there are people dying on the front lines and the Green Party just won't capitulate to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and isn't that awful? Um, like, it's just like the, the, the commentary has just gotten absolutely appalling, um, which is why I haven't read too many newspapers for this um, newspaper reading podcast <laughs> because I just don't bother anymore. Um, I, read, I read the Evening Echo. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the only newspaper <laughs> that I will actually read. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and the Sunday Business Post, they're, they're good sometimes. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, the whole thing has just been really, um, the commentary has been appalling um, and it hasn't been particularly insightful because, I mean, we went to the electorate with a manifesto, um, we said that there were certain things that we wanted. Um, we're going into a negotiation process to ask for those things and see if we get them. And if we don't get them, well, then the members will have to make a decision on whether they're going to go in or not. Um, but if you're not getting what you ask for, then that's that's the whole point. Like, I'm aware I'm speaking to trade unionists here. Like, but it's, you know, this idea that, you know, you would go in and be like, hello, I want this and this and this. Uh, okay, you're giving me none of them. Right, I agree. Good idea. Yes, absolutely. This is a good negotiation. <laughs> um, it's just been a bit, um, it's been a bit off the walls lately, to be honest. Well, I, I'd be assuming that, the, the, not, not that I'm saying that the Green Party have a hardline stance on any of this stuff. I mean, what, what I've noticed about it, and I have read three or four of the newspapers over the weekend, and it's, what, what I find most interesting is that all of the political correspondents seem to be saying the exact same thing. They're all saying that Fianna Fáil want into power no matter what. They'll sign up to any agreement whatsoever. They're saying the Fine Gael are a bit touchy about this now, partly because they've got a bounce in the polls. And then the Green Party are watching uh, their membership because they need two-thirds of the membership to vote in favour of the deal to go into government. So those, the, the, all of the correspondents are more or less saying the same thing with lots of flowery words around that. Um, I, I don't know whether, you know, Kieran mentioned the Occupy Territories bill and thrown some little bits and pieces in there. If that's about uh, Fianna Gael potentially throwing something to the Green Party or, I mean, Fianna Fáil, I don't think we'll have any hard lines. I think they'll just go in for, for whatever they can because, you know, even in the, the most recent polls, they're not gaining. They're, they're, they're way down on where they were. Sinn Féin are not losing ground. They're not gaining, but they're not losing. So there's, it's an interesting dynamic that's going on. But what I'd worry about is the whole um, living in a bubble, the journalists living in a bubble, not, not recognising what's actually going on on the ground. Kieran, you wanted in on this one, I think. Yeah, and a couple of points there, Dave. Thanks for bringing me in. Uh, Jesus, Dave, you really scare me here with your naivety or else you're just playing devil's advocate as the anchor of this podcast. <laughs> but to think that you've just suddenly realised Fianna Fáil would go into government at any cost, mother, good God, they would have went into government with their granny a long time ago, you know. Um, nevertheless, I take your point, you know, the media seems to be living in a bu bubble. But I would just like to ask um, Lorna there, you know, 
if the Green Party, it's been reported that if the Green Party are not capitulating as per, I think Alison O'Connor stated in a, an article a couple of weeks ago, surely your leaders are doing a good job, which begs a question then, why do you want Yemen out? Well, now you're playing devil's advocate. <laughs> I mean, very sneaky. Um, um, it's not It's not a case necessarily of um, wanting even out. And I suppose we're moving on to the letter part um, of the discussion. Um, I, I, I do have to be kind of careful here because what I've been noticing over the last week or so is, um, like, I've, I've been going on local media um, and... You know, normally it's kind of like, you know, oh, it's fine. It's fine. You know, I just I'm speaking to my own constituents. So that's I can I can sort of speak to them. Um, but then suddenly my words are being taken and I'm hearing them back um, on uh, national platforms, <laughs> um, you know, which is uh, which is the kind of line you have to dance. Um, yeah, um, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily about, you know, well, we have to get rid of Eamon um, because that's not really how the Green Party views leadership like we, we sort of went for a very long time without actually having a leader at all um, and being leader of the Green Party is not this kind of all-powerful position where you know like in the in the same like people think of leadership and they think of the leadership of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael where you do have like this sort of iron fist rule over your um over your councillors and TDs and stuff, whereas in the Green Party, being leaders a bit like herding cats. Um, so it's not um, it's not this all powerful kind of position that we're all fighting for all the time to get. Um, like I remember, like when I um, when I initially joined the party, like I ran for chair of the Young Greens, but the way that I won was that people were like. Oh, good! Someone's going for it. Brilliant! You're chair now, <laughs> um, so that's um, that's that's a little bit different. Um, so no, it's not about that. It's just that Eamon has been there for ten years now, um, and we have these scheduled leadership elections after every general election. Um, so you know, it's kind of like the last one that we had was ten years ago. There wasn't one in. 2016 but that was a bit of an outlier to be honest because we've always had contested elections um so it just seems like the time is right to um actually have a con contested election um you know Catherine is I suppose you know she hasn't she hasn't said whether she's definitely going to run or not but um you know she's been deputy leader for 10 years now and she's done some great work like I, th I think I think I just personally think it's time she got a promotion you know and that we actually sort of did something a bit different and every every organization has to refresh itself so you know there's no great um animosity or anything um we're all very polite and nice so <laughs> that's kind of it i think the interesting thing for us from the outside looking in i got a lot of mates up here in the green party and i would know claire bailey quite well and as a friend and, and i know a lot of they'd be quite left-wing and quite radical in the north so it's interesting to find out or to get your your impression that when the vote goes back to the membership when it, you know i think it's two-thirds of the majority that needs to pass what's the feeling of of the membership and it's not a tricky question i'm just kind of i'm genuinely interested because i know that in the north all of the greens i know i would put them all firmly on the left in, in some in mm. some degree whereas you don't get that impression necessarily when you kind of interact with some of the green membership in the south what's your kind of read on that lorna yeah, I don't. I don't think it's an impression that people get. Um, but I think that's because going back to, you know, the particular kind of um, 
narrative that the columnists and journalists are going with at the moment, which is that it's shocking that the Green Party would want to do stuff for the environment or housing or homelessness. Like, you know, like that's that's what it goes back to. So there's there's a perception and there's an image of the Green Party that is somewhat manufactured, which is this image of Fine Gael on bikes. And, you know, that's what the Green Party is about. And as long as we, you know, get something that sounds somewhat environmental, then that's, you know, fine. Like, and we're happy enough with that. Um, whereas that's not really... Um, how the membership on the ground is. Um, like we've got 49 councillors now um, and the way that you become a councillor is through a lot of hard work and it's through a lot of, you know, helping people with their issues and it's through seeing the problems that are there, um, you know. So I, I don't, I, I think I think there is, I think there's a difference in between how people outside of the party perceive it and then how the party actually is because again like even even when it comes to like what the party started off as um i mean like that was very radically left-wing they it was funny they described themselves as the ecology party and they were saying well we are not left-wing or right-wing but I mean, they're always very left-wing. Like, if you're talking about stuff like, um, you know, completely changing the economic system so that it's not, in fact, a capitalistic system anymore, like, you, you're kind of left-wing. Like, you don't need to, you don't need to pretend that you're not um, or anything like that. Um, and then, like, even if you look at the founding principles of the party as well, like, there's seven founding principles for the Green Party, and there's it's stuff like you know, we have to redistribute wealth, we have to protect the environment, we have to look after people. Um, you know, and a lot of people who join the Green Party do so for reasons of social justice, um, even even before environmentalism comes into it. Like for us, environmentalism is the lens through which you view every other issue. Um, but that means that like you have to actually you actually have to protect people on the ground as well. Um, and like, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of an older, it's almost like an older version of the party is kind of reasserting itself now um, in a way that it hasn't before. Um, and I think that's what's kind of catching a lot of commentators and um, people on the outside on the hop because mm. they have this idea of what the Green Party is, which is, you know, we're all very genteel and urban and, um, you know, we live in South Dublin. That's pretty much where we are. Um, whereas, like, it's it's different than that. Um, but I've, you know, I've been in the party for six years. So, of course, I have this alternative view of what the party is. Um, like, and it is through working from the ground up um, and, and, you know, taking taking that approach to environmentalism, which is the correct approach, because like even even if you look at things like environmental law or you know the construction of the Aarhus Convention, for example, I mean, like the way that that's constructed is not well. You should look after the environment as this thing that is separate to people. What it says is like the people who are closest to the environment are what you need to protect. Um, in order to most efficiently protect the environment. So like even if you look even if you look at like the way that environmental law and activism has been constructed um, over over the decades, like it, it is about putting people at the center of all of your policy work and then you can actually start then you can actually start to um, to protect the environment as well. Um, a good person to talk to about this actually be Sinead Mercier. She does very good work. 
um, in this area because like, every time every time I listen to her I'm just kind of like oh my god like I never I never really thought about it like that because like even even the Irish word for the environment is cove hail which is um living together with life um so it's not this um kind of separate thing like there was this understanding um before colonialism came and sort of wrecked everything but um there was this understanding before that um you know, like the environment is not something that is separate to people. It is something that you live together with. Um, and, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm getting very airy-fairy now. Um, over, we, we, over, we, we, like this whole thing has, has made me made me very, very airy-fairy. But it, it is true, though, like, and, and I suppose that's kind of what this leadership thing is a little bit about as well. You know, it is, it is what version of the Green Party do you want to see um, in future? And how do we move beyond the place where we are now like we're in a good place now but I think I think there are ways that we can move beyond that even um and sort of reassert we what do, it is uh, that the Green Party is yeah we do intend on having Sinead on the show to talk in a while as well like what I did find interesting and um, just uh, I'm going to move on from the talks now in a second but the, the final one because we're all trade unionists and, and, and supporters of as you say the pe- people being involved in this stuff but one thing that, that seems to be a sticky point is a sticking point as well in the talk seems to be pension age rises poses potential problem in coalition talks there's an article again uh, by Fick, Kelly, Pat Leahy and Harry McGee uh, about the increase in the retirement age to 67 where the Greens and Fianna Fáil are saying no and Fianna Gael are saying it would be fiscally uh, irresponsible to delay that move any further so in an attempt um to solve the problem uh Fianna Fáil and the greens held a bilateral meeting and the quote here is that Fine Gael got in a quotation marks massive huff when they found out that the greens were talking to Fianna Fáil separately and um, so it shows you the the level of maturity that they all have as well in in, in um in Fine Gael that you can't leave us out of anything we're 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 to be the main people on everything um, I'm going to move on to the um, U.S. the U.S. riots. Um, who wants to talk about what's been happening over in the United States over the last couple of days? First, well, I'm sure we've all got something to say about that. Some of the scenes, of course, have been shocking. You know, the, there's a couple of things. One, uh, when I read about the death of George Floyd, and I looked into it, that there was a report that um, after five minutes of that cop kneeling on his neck, they checked his pulse, and he was dead. And the cop continued to kneel on his neck for another three minutes. And that, the kind of detail of that I just thought was fucking shocking. That like they knew the man had stopped breathing, but they continued to put pressure on him. And um, I suppose in terms of the response of the and the riots, I'm surprised that it hasn't happened sooner. I'm surprised there's not more of it. I mean, America's a country that's clearly deeply divided, but it always has been as well, really, isn't it? I mean, it's a the country whose history is based on slavery and genocide, um, but it, it managed to create these kind of foundational myths that covers all of that over and. America really has to face up to its history, but it doesn't seem to be able to. And until it can do that, um, I don't think it's going to be able to move on. It's a deeply racialized country. It's, I mean, I know we have racism here, we have institutional racism, but in America, it is of a different order. I mean, it goes right to the core of all of their institutions. You know, that there was a great um, newspaper, or not newspaper, um, bit of video yesterday of Cornell West speaking. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah. Uh, talking on CNN, I think it was. It was fantastic, you know, and he talked about it's not enough to have black faces in high places. And he was referring, of course, to Barack Obama, that that doesn't address the real racialized nature of American society. So, um, and of course, you have a fucking neo-fascist in the White House as well, to top it all, who's giving energy and 
um, and also impunity to, to cops and to the, to the and to fascists in America to do whatever the fuck they want. So I don't see it having a good outcome. I know that much. Yeah. When when you start looting, we start shooting. The tweet from mm -hmm. the president of the United States of America. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've watched the, the video a number of times as well. I mean, it, it's it's disgusting. Um, but it's not only just one man that's kneeling on him. Other angles have shown that there's three men kneeling on one man. Now, rumors have it that, that, and I don't know if this is true or not, but that the two of them, the, the guy, the police officer who was arrested um, and Floyd, were, were working together for 17 years beforehand, which, if true, um, that shows premeditation. But either way, I mean, as you say, you know, you, you said, Stevie, that you're surprised it took this long. I mean, this has happened over and over again. And that's, that's what the real issue here, here is. It's, it's um, institutionalized. It's systemic. Uh, there's, there's police officers all across the United States who think they can do this with impunity and get away with it. And the stuff that you've been seeing in terms of the riots in Atlanta, Detroit, um, people being killed. There's been at least two people reported today dead from shootings. Um, I've seen women picked up and thrown into curbs by police officers for standing in the way. CNN reporters being arrested. A horse trampling on another woman as she's standing peacefully in the, at the protest. I mean, it's it's disgusting stuff. Like it's it's stuff that you know. I'm reading articles saying you know the EU. Lucinda Creighton has a, an article today saying that the EU can't be silent on Hong Kong and China. And I'm just waiting on those articles about the EU can't be silent on what's happening in the United States. You know, it's it's um, double standards. Um, Kieran, yeah, I think um, both of you have summed it up. It's absolutely sickening. Um, but it's every so often this tends to repeat itself. Um, like when you have prominent American footballers doing what they did, and other sports people doing what they did in terms of not kneeling for the national anthem. You know the sort of attention, the the, the unnecessary and um, vitriolic attention they received by even you know, the likes of Trump um, regarding their silent but effective protest. And when that doesn't bear fruit, then people will resort to what they're probably no alternative but to do. I, I'm, I'm, I, there's a part of me is actually quite happy that you know for once it's time to get into the bloody White House. You know and. The more that happens, the better. Get a, get your hands on your man, um, and the quicker they do it, you know, at least then they're they're actually doing something very effective. It reminds me of, you know, the troubled times in the north. You often wondered why do you go out onto your own streets and destroy them? That's part of the real areas that actually are the perpetrators of this sort of institutionalized racism, and let's do damage there. And look, it doesn't surprise me. Um, Stevie quite eloquently put it in terms of how that country was built. Um, it was built from a racist and motivated um, sort of perspective and drive. And um, it does, it's a powder keg. And if ever there's going to be trouble in a country in terms of potential civil war type trouble, it's going to be in that country. No doubt about it. Um, and the black people are just asserting themselves and rightly so. Mm. Nothing against it. Yeah, I, I, I do think it's a, it's going to be an interesting lead up to this uh, presidential election over in the United States because, you know, the two candidates, you know, 90% sure it's going to be Biden uh, versus Trump. I actually think this is going to solidify Trump's win. I, I think what it's going to do is um, harden the base 
um, that has been supporting Trump. Um, there'll be a look at these people rioting on the streets and respectable America doesn't put up with this stuff. But also the fact that Biden himself, um, you know, he's not, he's not the campaigning person that he used to be in the first place. But the, the people are, like, like the Hillary Clinton um, election, I just think people are just not going to turn up at the polls for Biden. I, I think that they will turn up, but Trump's base will turn up in big numbers, which is the frightening thing. So any observations on what's happened in the United States, Lorna? Yeah, I, I do. I do kind of feel, I, I, I feel kind of sorry for, um, for people in terms of like, like, cause I was thinking about the, the presidential election as well the other day. And I was just kind of like, you know, if you were, if you were African American, like I, I wouldn't know who to vote for. You know, like obviously not Trump, but like Biden has not never done too much to help that community either. Um, and that's that's it's just such a shame that like they just don't there there's there's no one there kind of to to fight fight their corner. Um, yeah, no, it's it the whole thing is just um it's just really appalling. Um, like the the whole thing is just awful. Um, and like I I I haven't been able to watch any of the videos because they're just it's just too upsetting to see this happen again um and yeah um i think i think people are i think people are right to be angry um and i think you know like it's 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 just it's just it's just interesting that everyone is fixating on i mean like trump's comments on like you know when the looting starts the shooting starts etc etc like all this kind of stuff like you know the, 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 nobody is looking at the reason for the looting. I mean, like, if, if I was in that situation myself, I probably would, like, go and start smashing windows and taking stuff. Um, not because, you know, you'd want you'd want to have stuff, but just because, well, do you know what? I've never gotten anything. So why why should I, you know, why why should I just, you know, do that? Like, it's it seems to be coming more out of anger than anything else. But, of course you know, Trump and the right would then reframe that as, um, you know, just kind of nefarious kind of deeds that are being carried out rather than like a genuine and, you know, very reasonable um, show of anger mm. um, about way, the way things have gone. Because, you know, we, we, we'll have, we'll have, like, if, it sort of feels as though these things are going in cycles again and again and again, because like, even on Twitter, you can kind of observe cycles that happen with it so you know like an initial incident will happen loads of people then will start saying you know oh yes you know hashtag black lives matter all this kind of stuff but at the end of the day like people's economic conditions will be left in the same if not worse position than they were before um, and people's material conditions aren't going to change anytime soon um, and nobody is actually doing anything about that like people are quite comfortable to be you know against racism in quite a superficial way, I think, but they're not willing to be against racism in a way that actually changes people's material conditions so that the conditions of racism then are changed like by that. Um, you know, and it's it's just interesting because I mean like that's you know, we see all this horrific stuff happening in America and then there's always of course a tendency um in the Irish public because I can, I can, I feel more comfortable talking about that, um, you know, to be like, well, you know, all this horrific stuff is happening, but you know, well, we're, we're doing okay though. Like we're, we're not so bad. Um, and 
yet at the same time, I mean, like if you look at systems like direct provision, like we're literally incarcerating people for being black in Ireland um, for indefinite periods of time um, in conditions that are inhumane. Um, and yet we're all quite happy, you know, like, um, you know, we're all, we're all quite happy to, you know, talk about, oh, well, black lives matter, but like even the black lives in our own community don't particularly seem to matter that much. Like, why aren't we going out and saying to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael who haven't committed to ending direct revision um, at any point? Um, you know, like we, we should we should be look we should be taking this and looking at what we can be doing ourselves. Um, and even the traveller community as well. Like the way they get treated, I've seen from my council work. Like these people get treated like dirt. Yeah. Um, and you know, but it's not racism to you know, give out about them. The, you know. the Irish are not racist. And we've heard it all over Twitter in the last couple of days. Stevie, you have something to put, put to input? No, just to, just to support Lorna's point of view about the, the class nature of the American divide as well. You only have to look at the... I mean, Minneapolis is, is classed as a fairly liberal city, and yet it's deeply segregated in terms of colour, in terms of living areas. The average income, I was looking up the other day, of a white family in Minneapolis is $72,000 a year. The average income for a black family is $32,000 a year. And, you know, below half of that. So that's that's the class nature of, of, and that's what I meant by kind of that racialized form of capitalism that America kind of is you know, an exception for. You know, and um, until those, as Lawrence said, until those uh, material conditions are, are changed, America's not going to change at all. You know, the other thing that's really struck me is over the last number of years. I noticed it first during Hurricane Katrina when they were rescuing people, but they were rescuing people with like AR-15s and AK-47s and tanks. And that paramilitarized nature of the American police force is a real worrying development. Now, obviously, in the north of Ireland, we've seen that during the Troubles, but you see that everywhere now. Apparently, I think that the cost in America, like $5 billion last year, was spent by American police forces over the last few years on buying equipment from the American Defense Department. I mean, armored cars, tanks. So when you see policemen turn up uh, dressed like they're in the army, then you need to, need to worry. But you're seeing that emerge across across the states and across Western countries, Western European countries as well. The paramilitarization of the police is a worrying development. Kieran? Yeah, look, when I see this type of stuff happening, I, I'm always, always minded to think about when I read um, Jack London's book, The Iron Heel, and he talks about the, you know, America, you know, to counteract this part of the problems and the inherent contradictions of capitalism and when it becomes under threat, it sort of discards its it's boasts of democracy and all of this type of stuff and the structures that it has. I can't but help, you know, it's just moving along those particular lines. Um, and even, you know, like Stevie there talked about Hurricane Katrina, was it? Mm. Um, respect. A lot of those um, troops and police forces that they sent in were all privatized um, uh, military groups, I think there's one called Black Watch, where they, they literally have these fast armies of mercenaries who are paid fast sums of money from the public purse. Um, and they're often the boards of those particular companies that own these private mili militias that are actually you know, involved in American government. And it reaches right up to the higher echelons of American society. And all of that is basically there to protect a particular class, to protect, to protect capitalism at each and every opportunity that capitalism comes under threat. And, you know, the soundings that the likes of Trump 
Well, so we might like what he's saying. He's basically telling the truth. Um, when the looting starts, the shooting will start. And let me tell you, he will hire in all of those private militia to go about and do their business. And the very people that were deserving of any sort of you know, survival treatment in and around Hurricane Katrina and Sandy were the very people that were discarded. That those militias were sent in to protect the properties of the very well-off that were shipped out of those areas. And they were there to protect the properties from the likes of the lower classes, which tend to be black people. Mm. And that's effectively the institutionalized racist response to any sort of catastrophe. Um, and like, let's be honest here. This policeman killed this innocent black person and full video view without shame, knowing full well he was being filmed. He knew he was going to get off and expected to get off. And it took four days to arrest him. And it only took the threat of violence and uproar, uprising and whatever else you want to call it before they decided we better do something here. And it was then that they arrested him. Only then. So can you ask, you know, you need to ask the question, what would have happened had they not arrested them and nobody made a fuss about it? So it, it demonstrates that the, these people, um, the ordinary working classes, the black people, the people from the socioeconomic um, communities, they are left with no alternative because what they have not seen any sort of delivery or sustainability in terms of wealth distribution into their particular communities. And therefore they are rightly feeling threatened. And when they have nothing to resort to, their politics have failed them. And Barack Obama came in on a huge fanfare and everybody was celebrating the fact that there was a first black president. But let's be honest, what did it deliver? We still have black people regularly being killed by a racist police force. And they are protected by the very, um, the very people that run the country. And it just boils down to it's only a black person. Yeah, and I think you've stuck on something there that I was thinking about myself and not, not just me. A lot of people were thinking about um, what would have happened had it not been filmed. Um, there's no doubt that there would have been, he was resisting arrest and there was trouble and there was violence and the, the, the police officers were being threatened. As Will Smith's quote over the weekend was, over the week was, was quite good. He said, racism isn't getting worse, it's just getting filmed. Um, and and that's, that's what's killing the, the police officers all across the United States is that people are able to film these things. Three people kneeling on a man's neck. It's... Uh, that's, it's it's disgusting. But uh, and again, going back to what Stevie, what you mentioned there, this stuff, the poverty levels that that the black workers are expected to live under, all across the United States, that, that those figures would probably play out in most cities across the United States. But this poverty um, is intergenerational, as is the racism, and that's where you know if you're born into a poor family, the likelihood is you're going to remain in, in 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 poverty for the rest of your life as well. And there's no avenue to get out. And what they do is they throw the odd little, you know, scholarship here or there. So if you become Michael Jordan or you become a superstar footballer, then then that, that's fine. That that's your route out of uh, of the ghettos. Um, and people are fed up with it now. And people are just they've had enough. And and that's what all of those speeches that I've seen from some of the you know the rappers and the inspirational speakers, they're all saying the same. The people have had enough. So it's going to be. This one's going to be an interesting one to see how long this plays out. They're talking about strategizing, mobilizing, organizing. They're using all the right words, but 
it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the run up to the, the the next election. Look, we're running out of time, but I do. It's almost a weekly thing now where I go back to Owen Harris just to mention something that he said. Uh, because he, I yeah, mean, you have to. I, I think he just likes prodding me and, and and annoying me. Like, and again, it's it sticks with the sort of the human rights element. And wait to hear what he says this week about human rights. Last week he was sticking up for the working women of Ireland, but this week now he's. Um, he starts off the column. It's called Finnegale no longer looks out for the private sector donkey. Right? Let let me start with a reality check. The private sector creates all our wealth. So obviously, for all of us, that this is off and annoys us. It's not true. Labor creates all wealth. Um, but <laughs> he's complaining now about Finnegale not looking after the private sector, saying that the public sector again. He's playing that private sector versus public sector thing. But he said, furthermore, the public sector is no protector of freedom. If RTE had the last word, my voice would never be heard. My freedom of speech comes com- courtesy of a private sector company. The Sunday Independent is providing Owen Harris with his freedom of speech. Now, that implies then that the rest of the population, almost 5 million people across the, uh, across the Republic of Ireland, are denied free speech because we don't get a column every week in the Sunday Independent. But I think it shows the level of arrogance that we have among some of these commentators who know best about how we should run our country and what we should be doing and who should be protected and who shouldn't. We, we've run out of time. Um, I'm going to finish up and I'm going to say thanks again to Lorna Bogue, Green Party councillor, um, for coming on the show. Thanks to the two lads as well for joining me. Uh, this is The Week at Work, episode three. Um, thanks for tuning in and hope you enjoy it.